because you know I could have like hand drawn all the cards and crayon or something like that and be like here's my weird artwork about tentacle porn but because I sort of tried to make it look glossy and professional all these people wanted to buy it and so then I was like oh no I have this obligation now to all of these mostly queer people right and some and, and some non-queer tentacle fans out there too I'm sure <laughs> This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where you too can have Apocalypse shipped straight to your door in 60 minutes or less, seven days a week. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And our guest today is Naomi Clark. Naomi has been designing and writing for video games for over 20 years, from construction games and toys for Lego.com to workplace sitcom games, economic sims, and educational games. She started designing non-digital games a few years ago, and the result was Consentical, a two-player cooperative card game where an alien and a human seek communication, trust, and mutual pleasure. She teaches game design, user research methods, and the history of independent role-playing at the NYU Game Center, where she's chair and faculty. You can find Naomi's writing about games in her textbook, A Game Design Vocabulary, which is co-authored with Anna Anthropy, who listeners of the show will know we are a big fan of around here, and in collections like Queer Game Stories and Video Games for Humans. Naomi, welcome to Queers at the End of the World. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here with you guys. So just to get us started, your card game, Naomi, of human-alien intimacy consentacle was originally designed for NYU's No Quarter exhibition in 2014. Since then, it's become something of a cultural phenomenon in the indie game space, at least in what I know of it. Tons of friends in games and the game design students I teach often reference it and cite it as a source of inspiration. And I think that's really interesting because the game contemplates some pretty niche themes. We've got tentacle porn, we've got sexual relationships between very different bodies, and yet Consentical has seen the type of success I think a lot of indie game makers would totally envision for their own projects. So I wanted to start by asking you, um, to what do you attribute Consentical's popularity and overall appeal? Yeah, I guess I feel really happy with the success of Consentical. I, I think probably like relative to a lot of other successful card games or board games, I think a, a lot of uh, independent designers would consider it a relatively niche success. I think there's probably around... 10,000 copies out there in the world, which sounds like a lot. And I certainly, you know, I, I don't think I could probably pay the bills with Consentical, which I suppose is one way of, of estimating success. Of course, I'm also a professor, and I think that's part of why I was able to work on a relatively unusual project. But for me, I think the success is that people who are interested in it found it, and I'm super gratified that people are still talking about it. I guess the kind of success you're talking about where where people are interested in it, they're referencing it, they see it as, as maybe an inspiration for their own work. That's, that's the most meaningful to me. Uh, and I'm always very glad to hear that. Uh, and it's because it is a niche game is why it's popular in that way. Not a lot of other people had tried to tackle tentacle sex or <laughs> a, a, a sex simulation in, in a card game. You know, an all, all the previous examples that I looked at when I was sort of doing the initial research for this project, they're all pretty terrible, right? There are there are sex simulating card games and dice games and things like that out there. They're they're usually um, kind of like a raunchy joke. Oh, tee hee hee! It's like really silly and and naughty. <laughs> I don't know if you yeah if you imagine like a bad seventies jokes about sex or something like that. That sort of is the spirit that I feel like infuses yeah. a lot of sex board games and card games 
And then, you know, there's a lot of bad tentacle porn content in games out there too, which is sort of more immediately what I wanted to respond to. Yeah, so there just wasn't anything out there like it, I guess, is the answer. And so it really struck people's sense of novelty. It was something that they wanted to talk about, or they were like, oh my gosh, did you hear about this weird thing, right? And then I still get mentions whenever someone is talking on Twitter about like, are there any games about sex? Are there any, you know, interesting games about consent? Or, you know, whenever the topic comes up, people are always like, well, there is this one weird game. And so, yeah, <laughs> so that's that's the space that exists in now, kind of like, I guess we're, com- we're coming up soon on, on five years since I, I sort of did the manufactured version. And it's now like just r- really hard to find and people can only get it in a print and play version. Yeah, when I went looking for it, because of course, we're planning on playing it. I had it in my head that it was just sort of being sold because it's such a cultural touchstone for me. Yeah. And and because that's what we assume, right? We're like, oh, there's this product out there. It's probably somewhere on Amazon, right? And (laughs) I I didn't really want to cooperate with that. So I I was kind of bad. I like I did not make my products available for sale. And people will sometimes contact me to kind of complain about that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, you know, if I wanted to keep it in print, I would have had to charge twice as much for it right. because that, that's like yeah. literally how things stay in print is that every time you sell a bunch of copies, it funds the next print run, right? Mm. So it, it, it was very deliberately just a one-time thing. I don't know. Of course, now instead, it's like something that people sell for $200 on eBay. Mm. So you, you, oh can't really, you can't really <laughs> win. That one. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of love that though. Like you're, you're sort of like, like I'm going to do this my way. It's not going to turn into this media empire that feels right. totally antithetical to what it is. So. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I I have other things to do. I rather than be like, okay, I better uh, arrange for freight shipping into the United States or you know, for, <laughs> right. for these boxes of game. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it it's interesting to hear how much the game is sort of created through these relationships to queer community and like through through responsibilities and res- like responsibilities you want responsibilities you don't want <laughs> right yep yep yeah i've known too many people who've inadvertently backed themselves into being a small business owner and <laughs> been like oh i guess my job now is to be a part of the bourgeois and like running this small business i didn't mean to do that i was just trying to make something and, and, and get, give it to people for a, yes. a reasonable price and now i'm a capitalist <laughs> except not really because yeah it's like my anti-capitalist game has turned me into a capitalist what is happened right it's it's so it's so hard to make things and get them to people that yeah. you sort of get sucked into these gigantic global supply chain things well when we first talked about doing this interview um one of the things that you mentioned was one of the influences for consentical is james tiptree jr's science fiction short story and i awoke and found me here on the cold hillside when you told me about that as a influence for the game i went and read it and i was so glad that i did And I was thinking about how in that story, Desire for Aliens is this like sort of, I don't know, you just talked about bad tentacles, like Desire for Aliens is like this bad (laughs) tentacle that enslaves human men and and women, but it's mostly kind of focused on the degradation of masculinity, like, because of this bad desire. And as I awoke me, I was thinking about how the unnatural and incompatible sex that humans have with aliens ends up destroying both human bodies and minds. And I was wondering, like, as you were responding to that in the game, what like what was it about that story that made you want to explore or learn through making your own game about human and alien sex? 
Yeah, so I think I stumbled across this story actually when I was in the process of doing doing research for Consentical. I think somebody had mentioned it to me and asked me, have I, have I read the story? And when I read it, I was like, oh, cool. This brings a lot of things uh, into sharp focus for me. I think it was mm. the point at which maybe I decided that this game was going to be about aliens. Because there are other types of tentacled beings that characters in, in tentacle porn have sex with, right? I think demons <laughs> being another big category. Right. But um, I was like, no, this should be aliens, in part because of the story where, yeah, like there there is this futuristic culture of human beings who've come into contact with aliens. And now a big problem is that there's a huge fetishist trend among human beings where they become sexually obsessed with having sex with aliens, which turns out to be a really bad idea for them. In some cases, because their bodies are wrecked or because they're ruined for anything else, right? They've sort of become like drug addicts uh, of, of alien sex. And the aliens are not really that into humans, which I thought was sort of amazing in this story, right? They're like, eh, I guess so. I guess if you hang around and, um, and serve me as my slave, I might be willing to indulge your your fetishistic desire for me. So mm-hmm. I just thought that the re- the relationship here was really interesting. And it was a little bit flipped from the traditional tentacle porn thing, which I was reacting to, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, humans, especially nubile, uh, conventionally attractive human women are just mm-hmm. magnets for these alien or extra dimensional entities who just want to get in there. Mm-hmm. That uh, strikes me as so gross in a lot of ways, right? Not just because it's usually constructed as rape. But when I read this James Tiptree story, I was like, oh, okay, it's really been flipped around and the ideas that humans are are longing for and lusting after this quote unquote, like unnatural or inhuman embrace. And I thought that that was so much more interesting. And that that's something I wanted to explore like this, like what, what would mutuality of desire look like mm. between two like totally different kinds of, of entities. And I, it should, I suppose it should be mentioned that, you know, that James Tiptree Jr. is one of the pen names, Alice Sheldon, you know, who wrote under several different names. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, yeah, this is like an interesting to this idea of like, inhuman desire of, of, of like like aliens in science fiction, right? Like coming to like kidnap human women, right? Yeah. As like a bad, like, you know, mid 20th century sci-fi trope. So instead, for me, like the interesting play of gender and sometimes queerness in, in mm-hmm. Chip Tree's work, like really came to the fore here. So I think it really was this. And then also thinking about, you know, Octavia Butler's work in, um, in Lilith's Brood yeah. was also pretty influential thinking about what are the problems and the difficulties of sex between like totally different, like species from different planets or, or dimensions or whatever. And both of, both of their work, uh, Tip Tree and Butler, I found it so pessimistic in some ways Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you know, they, like the, the, the humans who want to have sex with aliens are like benighted drug addicts in Tiptree's work. And Octavia Butler's work is very, it's like a, about a terrible situation as, mm-hmm. as a lot of her, her work is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the aliens are sort of both benevolent and uh, sort of utterly don't care about human consent. Right. But it also sort of flips it around in a different way. It's like not like those aliens are just lusting for humans although the human and alien desire for each other is really present in those stories too Mm -hmm. but it's such a bad situation for the human beings so i was like i think you know i think for a game for a game that i want two people to enjoy together maybe we can just make a slightly more optimistic scenario and so that's kind of where i started writing the world of of consentical 
It's so interesting because I feel like the, I really relate to like the presentation of human alien sex in the tip tree story, which we'll definitely link to in the notes for this interview for folks who want to read it. I think it's in the public domain. It's, it's pretty easy to get. Yeah, I think you can get it on Lightspeed magazine. Yeah, But there's something, I mean, that feels very much like kind of an exploration of queerness in the like, or sort of how desires being kind of almost characterized as unnatural creates creates the power dynamics that Tiptree is exploring in that story in some ways, like this sort of like secretiveness and the the sense of, you know, having to be completely committed to this as the only thing in your life or else or else you can't get what you need. Some of those same tropes from like pop culture and pulp representations of queer sex. For sure. As well. And yeah, it feels like such a sort of like ray of light and opening of air to experience this like vision of, of like that kind of queer sex as like potentially mutual or not harmful or like fun (laughs) that happens in Consentacle. Was reframing queer sex something that you were interested in doing in the game? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I gave myself a problem, right? Like, mm. I, I knew that I wanted to write about a type of queer sex. And for all the reasons that you mentioned, like, especially in the tip tree, but also in the uh, in Octavia Butler's work, which is yeah. also kind of about non-monogamy, right? Because there's... So I was trying to figure out, like, okay, what is my spin on that? And first of all, yeah, I wanted to capture that same idea of, oh, the person who is going to... The human being who is going to go and have these interactions with aliens, it's not going to be understood by most of the rest of society. Uh, mm-hmm. And there will be sort of a rejection. And so that doesn't really come across in the cards if you play Consentical. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I explored that further. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to put out this prequel comic, which, you know, people, uh, I'm, I'm grateful, are, are sort of still actually reading this and finding it online. But um, in that comic, Kit, who's the human being, runs into anti-alien protests yeah. and, and and people who are like prejudiced against against human alien sex and sort of rescued by her friend who's like another alien sex lover and who are like part of this subculture. Mm-hmm. But the um I guess the way I spun it was instead of benevolent aliens coming to rescue humanity from itself, which is sort of what uh or these aliens who like sort of don't care about humans and, and humans like go and like seek them out because of insatiable fetishistic human sex drive in like James Drifting's work. Yeah, the aliens in my scenario are are basically sex tourists. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) I I don't know, I sort of think of them as being a little bit reprehensible. Mm. They are coming to Earth in part because Earth is full of like intergalactic ingenues who like, (laughs) who've never met an alien before. And I guess it's like, going to the gay bar and seeing somebody who's like to- you know you who, who you've never seen before like that dude with a british accent yeah in, in like your undergrad class everybody's just like <laughs> super into them right Ex- no- except the aliens are the dude with the british accent in this case right exactly. yeah and so they're like oh i can just go to earth and everyone you know all those <laughs> all those yokels are gonna be like ooh. We don't know I'm from Manchester. Yeah, so yeah. I think in the in the bigger alien context, it may be that uh, that you know Dup, who's the alien character, is like is doing something like slightly shady uh, or or slumming a little bit, right? Like going to Earth is is kind of like slumming. That yeah, it's like oh, do you really want to get involved with a human? Like, how could you have a real long term relationship with someone like that? Like someone who's just. <laughs> 
<laughs> someone who has never even been off their planet. Yeah, so I think th- that that's also you know it, it draws from aspects of queer culture, right? Like, um, yeah. I don't know. I I think about so many conversations that I've had with people over the years of like maybe don't get in a relationship with that person right away. They're still sort of like figuring out who they are, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But that, you know, and that how how that kind of thing maybe doesn't matter if you are just looking for a hookup. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that this is like maybe a really important formative experience for Kit, who is a human being kind of exploring a new kind of desire. And then on top of that, there's all this stuff about bodies and sort of like exploring sex in a new and different way. But but this idea that like that Kit is just sort of coming out of the closet against the prejudice of other human beings is definitely important part of the scenario. Yeah, I, that kind of relates to the sort of dystopian and apocalyptic context for the story. Like you're talking about like how there's this protest going on and, and like the world in which aliens are encountering humans in this game is like folks are sort of dealing with the transactionalness of these encounters. And there's this sort of like looming threat on the outside of like the club is like a club underground that you access through an app. Like there's all of these sort of doors that one has to pass through in order to gain access to this world. And I was thinking about that in like the context of how often like kind of big events in like pop culture, apocalyptic stories, like thinking of many scenes in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or that seen in the matrix where there's like the rave going on and the impending machines are coming and then they're like having sex while the while the while the party's happening and like gigantic events as occasions for like intimacy between bodies and i'm like super interested about in in this sort of body exploration part of it that you're talking about I'm, i'm interested in that kind of dynamic between the like inside intimate like body exploration outside like massive social movements dystopias and apocalyptic things happening yeah yeah i so that is kind of the big reason why there is a uh, a protest is to kind of suggest that there's something new going on that there are reactionary forces lined up against it right it's not like earth is hundreds of years in the future and has learned to get along with in intergalactic society with alien cultures right it's this is not Mm -hmm. like the world of a game like mass effect instead it's like relatively recent and you see kit sort of like taking a shower and riding on the subway and sort of things like normal and i do think of that as a type of apocalyptic event and i guess i'm influenced well in part by like miracle man uh the old comic book that was written by alan moore and neil gaiman was always a really influential series for me because it's about superheroes who have powers that that derive from an alien source like completely changing the world Mm -hmm. and everything gets slipped upside down and there are these aliens from neptune who who show up on earth and completely change society and economy neptune doesn't get enough love so i'm I'm glad about that yeah yeah i think neptune is very underrated as a potential place that aliens could be from in a kind of pulpy way but um it completely turns society inside out so i i do think it consentical is meant to be happening at one of those moments where there is this enormous energy of possibility, but also kind of terrifying. Um, the kind of, of moment where people are kind of discovering these new desires that that hopefully are not destructive in the in the James Tiptree way. But um, it's mm. it's a topic that, yeah, actually, I guess it was about two years ago now, I was asked to explore it for another collection of games called First Contact, which is a Kickstarter project being done by um, Thorny Games. Uh, they're role-playing game designers who do a lot of games around language. And, and they were working on a role-playing game about 
communicating with aliens. And they asked me to make a game as part of this companion collection that explored the idea of humans and aliens coming into contact. So what I ended up doing, kind of as a follow-up to Consenical, was create a two-player storytelling game that could take place in the same world, where it's about two friends, one of whom is staying on Earth as society has changed and turned upside down by contact with aliens and new technologies and things like that, and the other friend who is like going on a mission out into space, but accompanying mm. the aliens as a representative of humanity. So by in playing the game, you kind of construct the the world of the game as you play, and you tell mm -hmm. stories about like what your experiences are, either voyaging out into the stars and maybe becoming more than human yourself or like staying on earth and sort of witnessing uh, how the whole world changes. So yeah, I think it, these types of thoughts and like this type of exploration for me really started with Consentical because I kind of needed to know what world it took place in. Yeah. One of the things that occurs to me about the world building for the game is I personally love that the name of the game is a portmanteau. <laughs> There's something about that that feels like it really points to the uniqueness of the way a a game can kind of look at these concepts and get people to like focus in on like maybe just a specific scene. Like earlier you were saying, you know, this is like about like a hookup where if we were to think about like the big, just enormity of the, the Butler, when you're talking about Lilith's brood, which is a three novel series, that's like this very extended polyamorous but it's like a relationship like it's mm -hmm. this really long like sort of ancestral tale of all of these aliens and humans kind of coming together in this um family that very much in some ways lacks consent but i love that consentacle is like we're going to take a genre convention which is tentacles tentacle porn and cross it with another idea and like the game is going to take place at like the moment when that portmanteau is created mm -hmm. And I feel like that it gets at something so cool with this playful moment when like two different kinds of ideas intersect in a way where maybe like you couldn't necessarily go and tell a, like a multi-novel epic, but like the point of it is more to like explain or explore like how two people are relating to each other at this like pivotal interpersonal moment. Yeah, I would say that definitely stems from how I think about games and what I feel like the strengths of games are, at least in the way that I approach them, since you know everybody designs differently. I think that exploring the effect of an interpersonal space that's created when people sit down to play a game is really good at doing that kind of moment or or vignette. Some people, you know, call um, short games vignette games, if they're doing a similar mm -hmm. kind of exploring one moment in time, looking at all the kind of dynamics and the things that are going on in that moment. Or a situation is the word I often use, in part because I see my design practice creating that situation where you're like, okay, this is just two people and a bunch of things happen, and it's actually very, very complex. So you can kind of explode it and explore the possibility space. So it's less about trying to tell a whole story with a narrative arc, uh, which of course, a lot of games do that. And games that are trying to be like a big epic are, are really popular and they get a lot of attention. But I think that there are particular things that games can do that are about exploring those moments that don't really get addressed in those gigantic, huge, epic arcs, which at the largest scale of looking at the experience, they do share a lot in common with epic stories and in, in movies or, or novels or, or trilogies of novels like Octavia Butler. But with the games, you get those epic stories studded with all of these like interesting little moments, whether they are 
a boss fight or a particular like crucial set of decisions that have to be made. So getting that the nuance and feel of those moments, right, I think is is what I love to focus on uh, as a game designer. And so for Consentical, I just, I bounded it very clearly, right? I was like, okay, this is about one hookup and you're not going to do a whole bunch of, you don't have to think at all about like what necessarily about what happened before or what's happening afterwards. It's contained. And then if you want to, you can read the prequel comics so you can know like what I was thinking about as the world, but uh, it could just be this one moment. So it is like a short story of a game, right? And that's in part because I wanted people to be able to play it quickly and learn it quickly. I love that. I, I mean, I'm personally such a fan of those micro experiences. And I just, I super tune in with that idea of getting to have this moment that's like bounded. But then like, for me, I feel like that becomes really big in a different kind of way than if you're playing like a three hour thing with a million pieces and, you know, a book, which I I like those games too, especially if there's, there's lots of text in them and there's a story to read. But I wanted to, I, I wanted to connect up a little bit with two-player games mm-hmm. specifically, I'm really interested in this just as a, a design question and just something I've been noticing. And, you know, I've been quarantining, you know, throughout the pandemic with my partner in our apartment. Um, Nino, I think you're in a pretty similar situation of just being you and your partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really tuned in with how influenced we've been over the last two years by like two-person dynamics. And I just wanted to like pick your brain about it a little bit because, you know, we used to play games in bigger groups and just socialize and enjoy being together in this different kind of way. And it's all kind of compressed down into just a tessellating repetition of two-playerness over the last two years, <laughs> which I, I, in many ways has frustrated me. But then the flip side to that is I feel like there's been some really interesting work being done in making interesting two-player games and and I thought you might have just have some interesting thoughts on what makes two pay, player play particularly powerful. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. So of course I, I wasn't really you know I wasn't thinking about uh, pandemic considerations back when I was designing Consentical since it was so many years ago. But my latest game is also a two player game, uh, and and um, and so is the, uh, another project that I'm working on, um, Lace Runner, which is uh, an adaptation of a a two-player card duel game, right? Which is sort of similar to Magic the Gathering and other Mm -hmm. games like that, which are are traditionally duels between two players, right? I think for like my latest game, the storytelling one that I was mentioning uh, about the two friends, that was for sure inspired by feeling a a lack of connection to other people and sort of wanting to reach out and write letters Mm -hmm. to or with friends who I hadn't been able to see during the pandemic. But I think in a bigger way... I'm drawn to two-player non-digital games because I feel like they are maybe one of the easiest forms to experiment with and figure out like how you could push the edges of what's expected in games, in part because they are simpler, right? They, there, there are two people, there are two sides, and you're figuring out like what could those two sides do cooperatively or competitively or both. And they are traditionally a little bit of a neglected form uh, because of the social role of board and card games, right? Oh, board and card games is something that we do when we're getting together with friends. And so for most commercial purposes, people are like, well, you know, it'd be good if a, if a game could support four people. And if you make a two-player game, then 
it's it's not as likely to be brought out during game night. However, like you're pointing out, it, it is a better game for people to play when they like only live with a, one other person or with a partner. And I feel like that's where we've started to see a little bit of a resurgence of two-player games. Now, as I think you have more people, but not just because of the pandemic, but because it takes a bit of effort to put together a game night, right? Like a lot of people maybe have a regular game night, but there are a lot of times when you think, oh, you know, I'd like to play a game, but there's just one other person around and, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm going to invite a bunch of people over. Even before before the pandemic struck, that was an issue, right? So I, I started to see, yeah, more small projects coming out w- that you could play with one one other person. And yeah, I don't know. There's so many dynamics that you can explore between two people um, that I just feel like it's it's very rich. When Once you get up to three or four people, you start having other things going on that you have to juggle, like the the potential for one person to dominate any kind of cooperative conversation, right? right? Or for two people to gang up on somebody else, like uh, alliances or uh, like what what people sometimes refer to as player politics. I was just going to, I wanted to delve in a little bit on um, your Lace Runner project. Mm -hmm. I was reading that the statement on what this is, is a game of 19th century manners and I know that Android Netrunner is originally um, sort of like a cyberpunk hacking game where one person plays the corporation and the other person is a hacker trying to access these various servers right. and obtain points through getting data from the corporation. And, you know, either the hacker wins or the, the corporation wins by defending. I am super curious, like, what kinds of dynamics you're playing with or switching up in changing it to... Lace runner. Yeah, so that that really originated from watching people play uh, and seeing people talk about playing Android Netrunner. There was a time, I guess it was probably, you know, it was probably back in t- 2014, 2015, because I started having these ideas at the same time I was working on Consentacle, which unfortunately is something that happens to my brain when I'm trying to be creative. It's like I get like a, an extra buds sprout off on the on the plant, right? Oh, we're familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, uh, and so then you have to like, you know, put them off in a, a pot somewhere else for later. But um, I was noticing like when I had friends who were playing Android Netrunner that people had this very flirtatious style <laughs> with each other often, right? And it, w- it wasn't true of everyone because I definitely had like watched people play. And like, I think, you know, more often, honestly, like cis straight guys would play in this way that where they were trying to be completely poker faced, not even looking at each other, like just focusing like, only on the cards uh, in in order, like, you know, strategically as well, right? To like, not <laughs> let anything slip through to the other side. Um, right. And I I also had watched people try to play Consentical that way. And that's a disaster, right? It's like people try <laughs> yeah. to, it's yeah. just a complete disaster. And I was like, okay, this is useful information because this is not the right way to play Consentical. And I want to try and make sure people know that. And also it's fine if it collapses when people try to play it in a completely poker face, like no communication mode. But with Netrunner, I had some friends and like, particularly I'm going to give a shout out to, to Maddie Bryce, who's a game designer. She's now a teacher also at the, but back then she had maybe just moved to New York and was kind of working as an independent critic and community organizer and game designer. And 
She became known for playing this particular Netrunner deck called Gene Techie, which is the Japanese corporation that's like cl- cloning people and stuff uh, and mm-hmm. lays a lot of traps for its opponents. I think, you know, there's a little bit of like Orientalist, like inscrutability in the, in the design of that faction. But um, she really liked playing this deck because she uh, felt like it was a lot about like concealing w- her traps and like sort of luring them in. And the sort of layers within layers of social intrigue and mystery. And you can play Netrunner in the style where you're like, oh, like what am I putting he- down here on, face down on the table? <laughs> right. Do you, do you want to get it? Or am I messing with right. it? Kind of. mm-hmm. uh, and I saw her and some other friends, you know, I had another friend, uh, the voice actress, uh, Sarah Elmale, who was kind of learning to play Netrunner at the time. And we were sort of talking about this and she's like, oh, this is really, this is really super flirty. Like, oh, like you're going to take a card from my hand. Like, oh, do you want to take this card or that card? What am I thinking? (laughs) Um, You know, sort of holding your card up in front of your cards up in your front of your face. And there's a whole genre of um, stock photography, by the way, which is woman looking seductively over her hand of cards <laughs> I'm like ooh like what 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 am I holding here right so this this mystery and so I was like it's weird that um this type of dynamic between players has this extremely kind of cold technical nerdy story later on it's basically neuromancer right it's just rogue hackers like you know jacking in and trying to bypass the software security of a corporation to like steal some files um we definitely had some long conversations about how gay that dynamic is yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. no it it definitely is like but it's also like not it's not really on the surface for me right i'm like okay yeah like you are embodied as a bunch of pixels. Like for, right. for me, it's kind of like, I'm not physical. Uh, like my brain is the most important thing, right? And then you're sort of like doing all this stuff with software, except, you know, in the visual version, it's just, just manifests as more pixels in some sort of cyberspace. I don't know. I was a fan of cyberpunk stuff when I was a teenager. And I think I'm just sort of over it. I'm like, okay, this is, it's not really that interesting as a metaphor for social interactions. So I was like, you know, what would be more interesting is if the corporation if you were actually trying to like hack them socially, if you were trying to like worm your way into their good graces uh, and, you know, instead of security software defenses, it was all about layers of people that you were having to maneuver past. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) So that's, that's how Lace Runner works is that all the security software are actually other party guests who are trying to like get you in conversations or bore you to death or insult you so badly that you make a fool of yourself. Yeah, because I was thinking a lot about yeah, it, it's just so ripe, right? The the idea that you would cut someone and by and just ignore them, right, and that that would be devastating to their social status mm. uh, seemed like a more interesting kind of attack. And I have a long history of working with this type of thing too. You know, like one of the first games I worked on was a multiplayer combat game that we didn't want to have be about combat, so we made it about adolescent girls being mean to each other and destroying each other's social steam esteem and said, and that was called sissy fight 2000. Um, <laughs> so I'm always more interested in people like battling each other socially and destroying each other's <laughs> reputations <laughs> than I am uh, in, you know, the literalized physical violence that, you know, we have plenty of that in games already. Definitely. That also sounds like it could be some some very good training programs for like return to seeing other people after the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think part of the reason that I, I that that project has been a little bit dormant is because yeah, again, like in Cynical, I feel like it's a game that's best played in person 
where you can look at each other and you can like touch each other's cards. That kind of physicality is kind of important. So uh, hopefully, yeah, we'll be back to that. It's, it, it has been a hard time for lots of games that do involve performance and being in person with each other and physical materials. Can't wait to touch other people's cards again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, those dirty, dirty cards and their fingers have been on them. It's just going to be, I, I feel like it's a whole new area that you could make uh, game mechanics about, about like, yeah, just gross, grossing people out. Um, yeah, yes. my next game is, it's, yeah, okay, I've got it. Now, thanks for helping me come up with this, you guys. It's, it's definitely going to be plastic, translucent cards, but you have to lick them and stick them together. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's great. Are you brave enough to after COVID to play this game? Right. On it. And of course, you know, if, if people are really concerned, they could always do some rapid tests before they play with somebody else. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. A card liquor. That could be a good name. Yeah, card liquor. Coming to Kickstarter. <laughs> So as chair of the NYU Game Center, I also wanted to ask you just about maybe some of the trends and themes you may have seen over the past two apocalyptic years in the work of your students and your colleagues. What kinds of things are people in your community thinking about design-wise right now? You know, it to me feels like a kind of dystopian era. Yeah, I think it's been a very interesting time for games in general. Uh, when the pandemic struck, I think, you know, in 2020, there was suddenly a huge surge in the number of people playing games together mm -hmm. online. Uh, and so I definitely have colleagues and students who became like interested in doing work uh, in online spaces, much more so uh, during that first year of the pandemic. And I think a lot of them were already kind of leaning in that direction and sort of saw it as like, oh, okay, this is more important now to help connect people. And I also think the other big trend that I saw was just a shakeup in people's expectations or in their understanding of what the possibilities were. And I like to think of that as the kind of utopia that could emerge from a dystopian situation, right? That suddenly mm -hmm. maybe you realize the things that you thought were so important or the kind of established career paths or you know what kinds of games are going to be important suddenly everything's turned a little bit upside down and that's for a bunch of reasons right there are more and more teams working remotely with each other on games than there used to be just i don't know more remote work in general uh you don't necessarily have to like go move to a place in order to collaborate with people and there's been a shakeup in the kinds of games that are being made and that are popular. I mean, in some of these shakeups, I wouldn't describe as positive, right? The kind of mm. encroachment of things like NFTs and cryptocurrency into games or mm. the, the new obsession with the metaverse uh, as if it's something new that's going to affect mm. games when really it's, it's mostly just marketing buzzwords, right? And so I see a lot of students coping with this stuff. It's definitely... Uh, affected some colleagues' plans as well, right? Like the rapid change. I know at least a few people who were working on something related to some like machine learning or VR back in 2019, 2020. And then suddenly like everything gets turned upside down so much that now uh, the things that investors want to put money towards are, are very different and, and maybe more dubious. I guess that kind of shakeup tends to happen over time anyway, but I think the pandemic has accelerated it a lot. But the positive thing that I see students really thinking about more is, yeah, questioning what kinds of games they want to make, thinking in a renewed way about 
in-person games. I think I have more students working on role-playing games and LARPs and uh, and games that are experiences that you do in person together than I have in the past. And I feel like that's a little bit of a rebound. Uh, my students who were, who started off their time in school together during the pandemic, when they were could only see each other over Zoom, were very, very excited to be together in person and had like very different ideas oh, of what, yeah. what they wanted to do together in person and, and how important it was to actually be able to like be present with each other. And they're also thinking in really different ways about work. Like there's a real strong interest in working collectively uh, and maybe like mm. forming cooperatives or creating communities of artists to make games. Mm. Like we've always had some interest in that among students, but I, I feel like the pandemic has shaken things up enough that it feels more possible, more present. And like, it might be like a viable, interesting path forward in this world where I don't know, like, yeah, there are tons of people trying to to hire folks to work in games. Like, we're, there's, like, a, a ridiculous amount of uninvested venture capital in the world, all sort of chasing various types of stupid things. But there are also just a lot of job opportunities for people that want work right now, right? It's like a, a hiring market, for especially for creative people. And I, I, I feel like the, the, potential, the, the potential utopia that comes out of that is that people have freedom to to do something different that they don't, they don't feel quite the same kind of like, Oh, I have to get a job because jobs are scarce. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm going to starve. Otherwise uh, I think that the, you know, what people are calling the great resignation, you know, people walking away from work um, right. mm-hmm. is, is ultimately uh, for me as a potentially utopian thing, because it just opens up to people to more possibilities and less like they have to just buckle down to like, scrabbling for a scarce job that uh, an employer is going to dole out to them. So that's the kind of reversal that, I don't know, I, it, the, the seeds are, are being laid for something and maybe it is a, some kind of better, better future that we can envision, but we'll just have to see. Mm. Naomi, so for our last, last series question, imagine that you're headed out into space for a multi-year intergalactic journey. This is something that clearly you have imagined um, in, in the game you were telling us about. So each spacefarer has been granted a personal storage space unit about the size of like a rolling suitcase. And you don't need like clothes or food or bedding or anything like that. That's all on the ship already. So what would you bring with you, Naomi? This is a great question uh, and, and a tricky one. Um, a roll a rollerboard suitcase is actually pretty big if I don't have to put any clothing or anything like that in it, right? My first thought was that, you know, I have a daughter, she's two and a half years old, and she would be really mad at me if I didn't put her in the suitcase. Um, <laughs> yeah, she fits. Yeah, she probably would could fit in there and she would be like, Mama, put me in the suitcase. So uh, I would probably have, you know, but assuming that wasn't allowed or that, you know, her other mom might object to me taking our kid with me to outer space um, because she wouldn't be able to fit in the suitcase. My, my partner is too, too large to fit in the rollerboard suitcase. So um, (laughs) if it was just me on this trip, I think, you know, I would, I would definitely toss some electronic devices in there, you know, loaded up with a lot of information that I wanted. Right. And I think I would definitely have a, like a, a couple laptops and an iPad filled with lots of things that I wanted to read and listen to and watch and so forth. And I feel like we're at the point now where in terms of media that I wanted to think about or like ideas I wanted to contemplate, I could probably stuff it all into a pretty small space. Beyond that, I think I would fill my suitcase with two things. Um, 
physical physical prototyping materials that I like to like just cut and carve things up and use plastic pieces to make games with and tchotchkes of the kind that people use to decorate their living in office space with like, <laughs> I don't know, bobbleheads, weird little posters, uh, buttons. Um, because I think that's what I would, would start to really bother me on an intergalactic voyage. If I didn't have just like stupid, weird little tchotchkes to put on my desk, to hang up on my wall, um, mementos, uh, you know, personal effects that would just remind me of home or that I, I have a weird, like badly made, uh, carved wooden cup that my dad made for me maybe like 20 years ago. And it's like totally useless. It's like a terrible cup. <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. sitting on my shelf at home because I'm like, Oh, my dad made this for me. So I would probably bring that kind of thing, you know, just random, random junk. <laughs> I, love that. <laughs> I love it. I'm just imagining this like one corner that's just got all that stuff on it. Yeah. And it's like, it would be all over my, it would all be all over my bunk. It would be hanging from the bottom of the bunk above me. Uh, and it would just be a mess. But it, for me, that's like a really important part of being human, I think. Yeah, yeah. being a mess. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just having a bunch of stuff where you're like, why is this even here? What is this? I'm like, yes, yeah. that's that's very important, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I, re I really enjoyed talking. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>